welcome to another in our series of short podcasts focused on the event industry. I'm Martin Blunt, and in this episode, we consider the role of the presenter in a virtual event. In a virtual or hybrid world, does a presenter have to adapt or learn new skills? Well, let's find out with my guests today. First of all, we welcome Chris Helmet. Uh, he's managing director of Crystal Interactive, the largest full-service event technology company in the UK. And you'd think that would keep him busy enough, but he also still finds time for his other role in life as a professional facilitator. And joining him, Dave Austin. Uh, Dave has combined live performance, broadcasting and technical skills in his career. Starting as a BBC sound engineer, he then moved behind the mic and spent several years as a broadcaster. He now works as a freelance presenter, actor, voice artist, and as a coach, he specialises in effective performance conversations. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yes. Hello, Martin. So, Chris, um, this is your fault that we're gathered here because your jam demonstration that I went on inspired this podcast. So before we start actually talking about what we're here to talk about, maybe you just give us a, a couple of sentences. What is jam? Jam is the platform built by my company, Crystal Interactive. As with many other companies, in March of last year, we found ourselves with a bit of time on our hands as the entire industry was made illegal because no longer could we do face-to-face events. Now, we'd actually been working on something for a few months before that because I had been wondering what's going to happen to the events industry if we're not allowed to travel as much. Surely we're going to start doing more virtual events. And of course, I was right but for the wrong reasons and I was probably a few months late to really cash in on it but anyway we built Jam it's a virtual platform which enables people to participate in a virtual meeting um, and it's really built around this idea of creating a connection between the presenters and the audience. I think when you Uh, go on a lot of virtual meetings there's no sense of connection between those two groups it's some people sitting on the back edge of their seat watching and some people sitting on the front edge of their seat uh, presenting and there's not an awful lot of connection between them. I love your comment about running an event being illegal I hadn't thought about that but yes it technically it was illegal to run an event wasn't it? Basically yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well one of the things you do when you demo uh, to, to people like me and others was to ask a few demo questions. And one of them was, who has to adapt or pivot the most from physical to a virtual event? Is it A, the presenter, B, the event planner, or C, the delegate? And I had to think about it, and I voted for the presenter. And that's why I've invited you guys to chat uh, about what presenting in the virtual world amounts to. But before we do that, Can I just check? Dave presented with that question. Would you go presenter, event planner or delegate? I think on balance that it would be the event planner that has the biggest change to make. I just think that the event planner has a lot more to consider in how they structure the thing than the presenter whose fundamental job is to connect with the audience in whatever genre. Chris, what did the what did what did all your other people that were taking this demo over the last 12 months what did they vote and what would you have voted yourself not that many people say delegate for the simple reason i think that actually the problem is not enough changes for a delegate they're sitting all day at their computer and then they have an event which involves them sitting all day at their computer so that's why it's not a big change for them i think those who vote for speaker 
Um, I think when we, we think about a speaker, we can think about professional speakers who very quickly adapt because they're so on top of their skills. But the poor people who I work with day to day aren't professional speakers. They're people who've got a day job um, and then they have to put it down once in a while to speak in front of the audience. And those are the ones who are really, really struggling to connect. For the event organisers, I agree, Dave, that everything changes for them. But I guess what I would say is everything always changes for the event organisers. That's why you have event organisers. I remember one time doing an event where on the Sunday the client said, do you know what, I really hate this venue, can we change it? And the answer of course was yes, but the event was starting on the Monday. (laughs) Uh, It's usually can you make this room bigger? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose one area for me is, is a good presenter in any genre and that's a corporate non-professional or a professional will adapt because they have that intrinsic sense of needing to connect and finding the conduit and a bad presenter in either format doesn't adapt i mean i've sat through i've, I've done a lot of presenter coaching in corporates and i've sat through some atrocious presentations and worked with senior people who simply would not listen to any of the ideas any of the thoughts about how they could improve and went on stage and really didn't connect at all. So I think what we're talking about, if we strip it all back, is the ability of the person to adapt uh, to the environment they're in, whatever their uh, their normal operation might be. Let's talk about the good and the bad, because we've had 12 months of doing mainly virtual. So, Chris, what uh, I think we know what the good looks like. What sort of things have you seen are perhaps common mistakes or common problems? So that if there's one thing, if there's one argument that I I now pretty much insist on winning, um, it's the argument over how long um, our participants can be expected to put up with a monologue, or maybe enjoy a monologue, or connect with a monologue, whatever whatever we want to say. That uh, with Jam, we can tell when people are doing something other than being on Jam. So Jam runs in your browser. If you go to a different tab in your browser, so you go to BBC Weather instead of being on Jam, we know that you're not on Jam as the primary browser tab and equally if you go off and do your email in your email client again jam is pushed to the back and it therefore tells us that people are multitasking at best and that data uh, we just just interrupt you there chris um you can't see what they're doing though can you of course. Just, just in case there's anybody been on your platform gone my gosh <laughs> <laughs> well it depends if you i only know that they're not watching model. jam <laughs> <laughs> yes, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna tidy myself up here it's okay <laughs> it is being um it is actually being trialed by the north korean government at the moment to uh, as a new <laughs> enthusiasm assessor uh, no we can't tell what other people are doing but we just we basically it's just a it's just a little technological trick that a tab can a tab of a browser can return a point of data to the server when it's prominent and obviously when it doesn't do it then we know something else is going on and over the 150 200 events that we've been doing the the sort of the rule of thumb is that after 9 minutes of a monologue people start to do something else and of course sometimes it's longer because someone's more engaging and other times it's less because they're really boring you know even inside a minute but but as a rule of thumb you need to keep your monologues down below 9 minutes and if you just start with that, 
that principle, then actually you can start to put together a really tight show because not only for the audience is nine minutes not terribly long to sit through, but actually for a speaker, nine minutes is something that you can really craft. You know, you can you can rehearse a nine-minute presentation six times in one hour. <laughs> so you can get really good at it. If you give yourself half an hour of baggy stuff with slides and everything else, literally after you've rehearsed it once, you're knackered. So you just don't bother again and you don't get to the point where it's really polished and really tight and really good. So that's the that's the good I'm always looking for um, is how do we get people to work into those smaller time boxes that are much more virtual friendly and conversely the bad is the ones who just don't pay any attention. They believe they know best and they go for their 25 minute monologues and not surprisingly the data tells us no one's listening by the end. So what you're saying, death by PowerPoint is still is still death by PowerPoint, yeah. and people coming on to read their uh, to read their bullet points is just not ever a great way of but doing things. I, I, again, I can't disagree with anything that Chris says there. And the first word that came into my mind when you asked what's good, the, the word that came in was brevity, mm. without doubt. Uh, the only thing I would say, though, going back to the sort of the theme of the question, is that's still true of a live presentation. I believe. I do accept that there's there are a couple of elements that will affect a live presentation. One is that the person might be more physically engaging, so they by using their body better that they can't really do online, they could engage an audience more, moving around more. And the other thing is hierarchy, where if you've got the MD in the room, chances are people will stay at least physically engaged, if not mentally engaged, because they don't want to be seen to be looking at their phones while the boss is talking. Whereas online, when the boss is talking and they can't see the boss, they can easily wander off uh, and do other things quietly. So th there is a certain element that changes with the online thing there, I think, and makes it even harder for a presenter when they're, when they're only transmitting down that camera. Can we talk about respect as well? Because I just wonder if people are not respecting the event in quite the same way if you were actually appearing in front of people. I've had a couple of situations where we've asked people to come on and do some tests because it's a platform they haven't used before and we just want to make sure everything's working. Uh, we've had uh, people come in and get their PAs to do the tests. We go, it's not really going to work. And then we say, can you get in 15 minutes early to do a, uh, a technical test and also a little chat with your fellow presenters and what have you? And we've had a couple of people that just ignore all that and kind of use it like it's just a normal Teams or Zoom call and they arrive kind of on the dot or one minute past. Uh, Chris, are you seeing, are you getting lots of people kind of treating it just like another Zoom call or are you getting a better buy-in? Uh, no, no, we, we definitely wrestle with that, Martin. I mean, I think uh, as with the shorter presentations, there is a movement. So um, there are people, there are more people now who respect the requirement to be ready to perform um, uh, although there is still a very significant chunk of people who just think they move their mouth and wave their arms and don't know actually what they're going to say uh, when they start and they think that's okay as a use for a thousand people's half hour so um, definitely something that, that we've lost by going from physical to virtual is and Martin you and I have done these together enough the show that would happen the day before rehearsal day 
in any live event would be pro- probably pretty horrible mm. because people have got their slides all over the place. They haven't really thought what they're going to do. Um, you know, they, they haven't practiced the handovers. So the thing would be a pretty baggy show. But if you're getting people out of the office and you're getting them to a venue, very often in a different country, you've got that golden period. They arrive and you've got them in the hotel and they can't really say, actually, I've got something else on. So I haven't got time to rehearse. And I think what we lose with virtually is it is just an hour in people's calendar and they don't have that same space in their calendar in advance of that to get themselves ready so that they actually perform on the day. There is a respect that this, if you're going to be doing a virtual, if it starts at two o'clock or three o'clock or four o'clock, it has to, it has to be there. So I guess that is the thing, though, Chris. Uh, you're quite right. If you've got people in the hotel, they're surrounded by their peers. They have to come and do it. You can't just crash in at the last uh, at the last moment. Sounds like you've got a little tick list. You've mentioned the, the the top two. Can either of you give a couple of items of best practice? I'm trying to think of things which won't be obvious things but unfortunately in my experience it's the obvious things that make a good presentation uh, and there's very little that you can do to fluff around it so where i'm going here is to do with eyeline even online keeping your eyes into the camera keeping a, a clear projection of yourself out there within the constraints of the body not being able to move too much being reasonably uh, mobile so that people looking at you don't just see a static newsreader type person and the biggest one by a million miles is tone of voice using the voice interestingly light and shade even with the limitations of zoom or or team sound which is actually pretty good now getting better the bandwidth seems to be better to me uh, of late certainly uh, i've done a couple of teams and webex calls and the sound's been very very good so using the tone of voice and the flow of the voice to keep interest in what you're saying. That Those are still the core for me of good presentation. And anything that you fluff around that in terms of visuals, that's lovely. But you really do have to know how to use them well to use them effectively, I think. I'm worrying about my tone of voice as I say, Chris, anything to add? <laughs> as am i i mean i completely agree dave so, sorry to 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 just agree but i absolutely agree your, your, your three are probably where i'd start i mean if i was to add a fourth uh, and it's something that i've actually had to learn because i was previously allergic it's scripting um the nature of my facilitation is when i facilitate a session no one knows what's going to happen that's why they usually drag me in to do it and you know my script is based on um, sensing and feeling what the audience is doing and what they want and you know what we need to do in terms of the process so there's no scripting when I'm on stage and it really doesn't matter how big the group but as I've gone into the virtual world and for myself I've had to work on this you know don't use three minutes if you can use one don't overload people with tons and tons of words when a few words will get the message across clearer you know I don't have that luxury of being on stage and using half an hour of their time anymore I've actually found myself working to scripts more more and now with our presenters and bear in mind you know we would be working typically in any week with between 30 and 50 presenters helping them to access and be successful on the jam platform you know the 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 discussion now is not would you like to use a script but almost why aren't we using a script for this section because i've just seen how much it improves the timing the predictability the pace and the performance of the presentation Certainly, I've got my post-it notes around this screen. I'll just check and see where I'm going next. What should we talk about? Um, you've, you've sort of touched on, on things like scripts, and, and that probably leads us to 
some sort of auto cue in front of the on the screen so that you can look at the camera. And about a year ago, when all the COVID things started, I did a LinkedIn article when I was arguing that a lot of what we do on virtual is what I've been doing in the earlier part of my career in broadcasting. And the role of broadcasting and the role of production is is very important. You you watch a television programme. And Chris, you mentioned nine minutes, but nine minutes monologue will be a long time on a television program. Things happen and you, you've got B-roll, you've got graphics, you've got all sorts of other things. You may have some uh, Vox Pops or some other speakers. Uh, I was arguing that we should be doing more of it to, to make uh, presentations more interesting. I have suggested this to several clients. They do a little bit of it, but nobody's got the real passion and energy to go further because it frankly takes time and money to do that just wondered if either of you two had any experience and whether you thought the broadcast world can bring something to the virtual world of events yeah i mean if um let me jump in first i think you're you're absolutely right and i remember you talking about that at the get-go martin and and actually when you talked about that jam was a a much humbler platform uh, than it is now and the thought of you know flipping to b-roll in the middle of a presentation frankly filled us with dread but um but we've had to develop the platform to accommodate that because you're absolutely right that that is what holds attention i mean i think what I, what i was reflecting on the other day is that you know sadly i think that the the graphics op of the live event world is you know is not heavily utilized in virtual events now you know people have got this point that it's a lot about the person it's a lot about their message it needs to be very tight and you can't just hide behind a slide and so the slide wear is kind of gone or is going but i think that the opportunity then is to say actually very often for those very same people that maybe graphics has gone but it doesn't mean motion graphics need to go you know and a well chosen custom developed animation to land a point when it's the only bit of graphics you know maybe in a in five or six minutes of airtime is actually really worthwhile one of my inspirations is my son he's he's 14 years old so um, I've been working in virtual events for a year and a half he's been working in virtual events for four years because he did his first YouTube broadcast age 10 two years before I found it online and I was very grumpy about finding it but you know we can learn from the YouTube generation as well I mean these guys are and and girls are are putting together content that is really tight, that is really funny and engaging, and it's really cheap to make because they are just, they're not held back by, you know, the sort of overweight processes uh, when they're just making a, a quick bit of content. So I, I get inspiration from broadcast. We also get inspiration from YouTube uh, and this, this generation of content creators who are working out how to do stuff. Dave, you and I have talked because we've known each other a long time. Uh, we knew each other before we started our broadcast careers uh, professionally. And what were we doing? We were trying to find ways of making programmes with the technology that was around all those many decades ago. Yes. And I mean, it's very easy sometimes to be, as a professional, to be disparaging about the style of, of YouTubers because they do tend to do it in a much more uh, relaxed way, shall we say? Although not all of them, I have to say, but some there are some highly produced things on YouTube. Uh, I think there are a lot that require a bit more discipline and editing. But the but the principle of the immediacy of it, I I work in electrical training, and we spend a long time green screen studio, graphics artist filming on location, putting together very very accurate and concise videos of electrical training installation type work. And there are a lot of electricians out there with a mobile phone who are just saying, here's me on a job, this is what I do, there's the, there's the cover, I take the cover off, you unscrew this, you unscrew that, the phone's wobbling all over the place, 
they get thousands and thousands of views because they bring an immediacy and an, and an honesty to the subject. And whilst it may not be as digestible as the way we present it, it's perfectly watchable. And I think we all, all of us professionals from the past have to adjust our slider a bit to say, is it watchable? Does it do the job? Does it engage? Not, is it beautifully shot? Is it lit well? What's the sound like? Uh, because I think you're right, Chris, there's a, there's a whole generation of, of youngsters coming through now who will expect that style anyway. They're not hankering back to the style of the, of the early production era. So we have to adapt to that. But I think it broadens the issue to the general visual support, I, speaker support, as I call it, I've worked with groups on many occasions and you look at the PowerPoints that they think are effective, which are just a screen full of text and mm -hmm. uh, graphs where you can't read the axes. And you say, what, what is it actually telling this audience? Oh, well, I couldn't, I couldn't make it any smaller, but it shows the trend. Well, show the trend then. Take everything else off. Give me a red line. You know, it's simplifying these visuals so that they instantly impact and tell the story is where we need to go. And this comes back to my original comment, which is that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, engaging with a simplified story and keeping interest is the, is the secret of powerful presentation, whatever the medium. I'm just wondering, as we, we move forward and we are allowed to, to go out and, and meet, um, will there be a move to more professionally supported events? So will we be going to studios? I know recently I've been to Creative Technologies Studio near Gatwick. I've, I've used the Four World Studio at the Royal Lancaster in London. Do you think we will be doing that? Or are these chief execs and these people who are very busy just going to say, well, I'll just do it on Zoom? Yeah, it's a it's it's hard to predict, but I I can't help feeling that the the expectation of the average participant in the average virtual meeting up and down the land is rising. They're expecting something better than they saw last year, and I think you know communications were given a lot of slack last year because everything was so disrupted. So the fact that we could hear anything in any shape or form from our CEO, however tinny, was kind of quaint and uh, and a bit adorable um, because, you know, we weren't in the same offices and we got to see her kitchen or his kitchen or whatever else. But, you know, I think that sort of quaintness and that forgiving uh, nature is is now running thin. And, and I think people are wanting a higher level of production. Now, I think, as I say, that higher level might be people with small budgets being very clever about how they spend it to get quite a big impact, you know, using YouTube levels of, um, of production. But getting speakers into a studio gives such a benefit to the speakers. I mean, it lifts them so much and you just get the, the performance out of them that you want. And then I think that will just continue, Martin. And I, I think, you know, we will want to start bringing people back together for, you know, virtual is not going to replace physical face-to-face -face events, but we'll do it in dribs and drabs. So, you know, we may have very small meetings where it's absolutely optional whether you turn up face-to-face -face or you attend online as we find a new pattern of, uh, of meeting going forwards. But no question that people need and want much higher production than we've seen in the last year. Chris, would it be fair to say that Jam wouldn't be as good as it is today without COVID? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was evolving at one release every four months until COVID. Um, and now that's one release every four days. <laughs> I've had a few live events which have been videoed for Cascading Later Awards and what have you. And you do get into this thing, are we doing a live event or are we making a television or a video here? Uh, because there are certain bits where, uh, you know, which 
which way are we going to do this? How do you see it going? The question there is, are you thinking of the future? Or are you thinking of the, of the event as it happens? And my answer will always be, you want the room. The room, the people that are in that room, the live audience that you can react with are the ones you're playing to. If somebody's going to view it again later, then provision has to be made to make it accessible for them. But you mustn't sacrifice the live audience experience, in my opinion. But hybrid, of course, allows two audiences at the same time. Here's my dilemma, Dave. We're doing an event in September and we have a keynote speaker who's invited. So 100 in the room, 200 online, um, equal buying power between the two. So they're, they're, they're both equally important audiences, although the one online is, um, uh, is, more, is larger. So we've got, we've got a keynote speaker who's coming to speak about marginal gains. Now, the keynote speaker says, when I do a presentation, it's usually about an hour, but I could do it in 45 if you wanted me to. And you could imagine it's full of very interesting stories about sportsmen and sportswomen and marginal gains. And, and uh, you know, it's a very, very interesting topic. You're never going to get people to watch someone on a stage talking about marginal gains for 45 minutes, even if they invented it, which brilliant as she is, she didn't. And so we enter this into this issue, which is to say, do you please the 200 online and do a nine minute version? Because we know that the data is saying that's what they need. And then risk the people in the audience saying, hang on, I've just flown to Barcelona. She's a rock star. She's only just got started. And now you're taking her off stage already. Or do you say the people in the room are the ones that matter? If they if they're going to enjoy forty five, let's do forty five. But we know that our online audience are going to miss. I mean, I, I loathe to do this because I've got not a shred of evidence where you've got masses. But I would challenge the the idea that the maximum length is nine minutes when you're talking about a potentially dynamic and interesting speaker filmed from multiple angles on a stage, because that's like watching a television program and they're not limited to nine minutes. But they're they're limited to nine minutes of monologue. <laughs> No, I don't agree. What about a what about a live performance by a stand-up comedian? I've watched an hour and a half. That's true. I'll take that. I mean, I think if they're an engaging person, shot from multiple angles, uh, I've seen. Uh, what about the Christmas lectures that take place uh, from the uh, the Faraday Theatre? What about any top person speaking for any length? And and it comes back to quality of speaker, and the idea of covering it from multiple angles, which means you don't have this eyeline challenge because the cameras can either ch face the speaker as as they turn on the stage to engage the audience or we get an interesting view of the speaker that we wouldn't otherwise see if it's a good director cutting well-placed cameras and it's well lit i would contend you could go a lot longer and certainly 45 minutes is no long nowhere near too long in my opinion with a good speaker but it all comes down to the speaker the back to the broadcast techniques and the the lectures the christmas lectures uh, that you mention is a good example uh, of of pleasing both audiences. But I think Chris's point is that there are people who are not doing this as a full-time job who suddenly get pulled out of their day job to be a presenter. Oh, well, there's different, because the example he gave was a, was, a, was a charismatic speaker with lots of stories. So that's uh, where I okay. went. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I respect very much the, the experience that Chris has got, and it's been very in, interesting for me as a as a web presenter, uh, to hear that maximum period that you've discovered. And I will heed that very carefully. But I think when we're looking ahead to these better catered events with full technical crew, I would challenge that that, that, that could be stretched.
Chris, it sounds like you're going to have to spend a bit more on uh, production. Better go and chat to the client. (laughs) I I think perhaps if I could conclude would be that uh, on that particular subject, that would be uh, it's down to the individual event and the presenters and, and somebody has to or the production team has to make some sort of discussion about what it's going yes the the production team the producer has to have a realistic approach to this and to assess those presenters and what they're what they're saying and and be quite firm with them about the amount of time they're allocated you know one of the things that's driving that that time which you know which does sound which does sound short but you know when we talked earlier about the respect of um, of speakers you know respecting the audience and preparing and turning up on time and all of those sorts of things you know there's a, there's a very very low level of commitment from virtual audiences and I'll, I'll give you a little example you know one of the things where maybe the industry feels that the technology providers haven't really stepped up um, to provide a virtual solution is around the whole topic of networking. So, you know, we have those breaks and those live events. It's those moments of free time when people make connections that they wouldn't otherwise make. And some people love them and some people cringe at them, but nevertheless, you know, uh, they are a valuable part of what makes an event special. When it comes to virtual, um, why don't we do the same thing? Why don't we have you know little uh, little pop up meetings that happen in an, on an impromptu basis um, between people uh, uh, during the breaks in the in the virtual event? And and the answer is the technology is there to do it, but as soon as the formal stuff has finished everyone leaves i mean literally everyone leaves and it's very difficult there's really a sense that our participants are going to take exactly what they want out of that meeting and as soon as they feel that they either want to disconnect or they want to double book themselves they're out of there in a way that they're not in the physical event you can't really stand up in the middle of a keynote presentation and walk out because you now realize you'd rather be talking to your husband or your wife Um, uh, whereas in a virtual event you can and 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 I think that sort of low commitment that we're contending with with our uh, with our online audiences is something that's really going to shape the way that those hybrid events evolve I think you're right, Chris, and, uh, but I, mean, I don't know how you spend your time when you're at conferences and not actually working. One of my favourite things was to slip around the back and, and sit on the back row or just listen to the audience. I would sit there watching this expensive production and notice a significant lack of engagement on the back row, all fiddling on phones, looking at watches, chatting, making plans for the night, where they're going to go for a drink. So what we're picking up here, what, what you're identifying, is actually the same in a live event it's just that there isn't the opportunity in a live event to do that distraction and walk out of the room because they know they're being watched effectively Mm. but what we as event people and I, i include all of us here have to consider is how do we make events more engaging for the audience and not assume they're lusting for the stuff that's going to be given to them Uh, because that is often a mistake that the the corporate message which the marketing department are so keen to put across is not something that anybody particularly wants to hear and they go along and they pay lip service i'm sounding very Mm. cynical but i have spent thousands of hours in these environments seeing this corporate cynicism Uh, and so the challenge that you're identifying online I think is simply a symptom of something that exists in corporate life anyway. And we have to try and find ways to make events shorter, more dynamic, more engaging in any arena in order to try and overcome that cynicism. What, what do you think about that, Chris? Am I being too cynical? No, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. And you're right. It's, it is on the back row, particularly where you, 
you see it and obviously you know as long as they're keeping the seat warm they count as being there and being engaged and of course now we've got the data to say well they may be logged in but they're not here mm -hmm. so you know we, we have we, it's it's maybe it's you know it's painted you know more vividly in, in because of the data that we've we've got now but but I, I absolutely don't disagree and you know one of the things that's really really interesting uh for us is when we're looking at hybrid we've kind of got these these three models and our shorthand is sort of studio so get the speakers together the audience remain remote. The second we call match of the day. So that's two versions of the program tuned for the audience. So if you think about match of the day, so the people who go you know, to the stadium to watch the full thing, they get the full length version. The people who want you know who can't be there in person get a condensed version that is designed to be consumed mm -hmm. virtually which which you know is therefore that much more engaging and quite often works in those sort of blocks that we've been talking about and then the third one is that pure hybrid so at the same time the same an audience that is both online and in room are consuming uh, uh, the same material and finding the right format uh, uh, is is going to be you know exploring one of which, which one of those versions is going to work for a particular event, but definitely you know people go for uh, you know go for a jolly um, uh, and uh, and don't pay that much attention. Now, when it comes to hybrid events, I think the best place that we can learn from actually is you know of the well-known formats is actually TED talks. And for years, people have said to me, "We're going to do a TED talk style event." And what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean by that is my speakers are really boring and they go on for far too long so I'm going to try and get them to work in smaller bits you know and and I'm sure, I'm sure we've all seen TED Talk style events but but I think they're right you know they, they, they're right I mean they couldn't execute it before but they are right that you know very often shorter is better and maybe we do need to rethink for the average presenter not the rock stars who are you know who we could listen to all evening and would thoroughly enjoy but the ones who've got some drier content you know that's a little bit harder to digest and they're not naturally that brilliant at presenting maybe we can make them brilliant at being concise and and that would be a first step to raising the engagement of the audience well the future is just around the corner so we better get on with it i'm just conscious of what you said earlier chris um, shorter is better is that what you said i think i think we'll draw this to a close now <laughs> we, we all banged on about brevity and then spoke exactly. for an hour and a half <laughs> i think we'll, we'll we'll stop but um just some some closing thoughts um i i'm gonna say that i probably changed my mind a little bit right at the beginning with that question i would agree that uh, the presenter and the uh, event planner or producer has uh, has probably got equal uh an equal opportunity to, to, to change and evolve in the virtual and hybrid world. What about you, gentlemen? I'm going to say that whilst I stand by my contention that the presenter, a good presenter, can adapt to any environment, uh, I also accept that a lot of the people we're talking about aren't necessarily that proficient. And so they have got quite a bit of work to do. Uh, to to engage virtually but as we've talked and as I've heard what Chris is doing and how you're looking to the future I think the producer of the event has the biggest amount of change to make because the there has been a problem of you know the corporate conference comes up well we got this we got this we got this we book a big hotel we've got the night before we got a meal it was all a bit formulaic and i think it needs a lot more thinking about now a lot more targeting what is specifically the messages that have to hit what's the audience going to be how are they geographically located and 
What's their level of engagement in this subject? How are we going to improve on that? So those questions, which are production questions, I think will become harder to answer now when you're putting on an event. So I think the event people have got the biggest challenge. Chris, your thoughts just to close. Well, I think my thoughts are, I think um, Dave's done a good job of reminding me that, uh, you know, there's there's no there's no way of getting around the fact that when you've got a really good presenter, there's an awful lot that they can do. And actually, you know, we don't, as it happens on our events, we don't get the opportunity to work with really professional presenters. But I absolutely recognise, you know, they can carry an audience. I'd be interested to keep looking at the data and see whether professional presenters can stretch that nine minutes of monologue out, because I think, Dave, there's, there's a lot in what you say. I think I'd also agree about the... Um, about the the size of the change that the production community is going to go through, um, particularly as we start to head back into venues in September. Um, but, you know, I've always thought that this industry is best when it's innovating. Um, I just feel like the innovation's probably happening, you know, in a month now. There's probably what used to be a year's worth of innovation and um, and it's quite an exciting road not without its fears and its pitfalls because we're going to make some mistakes with all that innovation but I do feel we're on a track now to to really start you know developing the event magic very very fast over the next few months. If anybody listening wants to pick you up on some of the comments made or uh, maybe learn a little bit more about what you're both up to, uh, I guess, Dave, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find you. I think uh, I think you're, you're, you're on there. We can find you on there. Uh, Chris, what about you? Yeah, on LinkedIn, absolutely. Best place for me. And you get to see my son on video as well on my page. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, uh, both of you. My guest today, Chris Elmet of Crystal Interactive and presenter and coach, Dave Austin. You'll find other podcasts in this series available on your preferred podcast platform, all focused on the event industry. We're adding to the library all the time, so please do come back soon. I'm Martin Blunt. Thank you for listening. (music) 